What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you uh, another week of what's going on pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, who's here to not do aimless chatting, but just normal, good chatting. <laughs> Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing, man? <laughs> Pat, you're my treacherous little twin, and you know that we locked in. Oh, Let's gosh. go. <laughs> uh, we're talking Banshees of Irishiran today. We're talking... Uh, Drake, 21 Savage, Hurt Loss, as well as some other movies and Grammy predictions. So hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Dave, we have a lot to get into today, so I figure we might as well just jump right into one of the five movies that we're talking about today. And that's Causeway, the Jennifer Lawrence comeback film. Uh, premiered at Toronto 2022 International Film Fest back in September. Um, been a while, I feel like, since I really was, like, tuned into like, a Jennifer Lawrence movie, you know? But I, I, I knew this this was coming. You know, I knew that this movie was out there. After seeing it, I was pretty, like, okay. It's a good it's step hmm. in the right direction for, for J-Law. Overall, thought it was an okay movie. But more than anything, I think just seeing her, like, being in a movie that was, like, competent and, like, felt like it was really, like, letting her showcase more than just being like, I don't know, really pretty is really mm-hmm. nice. So I don't know. I, I enjoyed Causeway. I didn't love it. What about you? Yeah. I also had been anticipating this. This used to be known as red, white and water and had kind of been on the radar for a while. They actually filmed this way back in 2019, perhaps the last like pre pandemic movie to actually come out quite the wait. Um, the directorial debut from Leela, Newbauer, who is a theater director, and Jennifer Lawrence also was one of the producers on this too. And she did a lot of press about in the lead up to Causeway about how she was really invested in taking that next step in her career and making more pointed and specific choices about the role she was taking on. You know, it seems like she's none too interested in the franchise game she played for a while, or even stuff like a Passengers, which is kind of openly knocked at this point. But Causeway, which is on Apple TV Plus now, I think it's it's a pretty solid movie. Like it, it's effective film, but it's also just so like small in scope, and the drama of its plot is also quite reined in. So there's only like so many moments to wow you. I think Jennifer and Brian Tyree Henry both both great. You know they always are, but. It's just one of those scripts, one of those films that's quite uh, reined in. Not that there's not good things about it, but it's just, it's not a showy movie. Definitely not a showy movie. Um, More toned back and intentional. And just to clean something up, we did see J-Law with Don't Look Up last uh, December. but Her first vehicle in a while, though. Yeah, and, and another movie where she's i think intentionally playing a specific type of character that's mm-hmm. a little bit more about the character and less just about like j-law's star power mm-hmm. um and and i really give her credit because i think the the themes that causeway is trying to get across are meaningful and important um you know th- this is set back in the uh 2000s um after 9 11 um it, back in you know down in nola so we get a new orleans feel which i actually thought was 
thought this was like a pretty like nice New Orleans movie. You know, mm-hmm. it it didn't have to showcase all the like showy parts of it. I mean, you see the Mercedes Benz dome in the beginning, but other than that, like residential New Orleans, not Bourbon Street. Exactly, and I thought that was that was pretty nice. Um, and I really feel like what made this movie so compelling was just that uh, you get two really strong performances from Tyree Henry and, and Lawrence here, and I think they're. Their kind, of, their friendship, their on-screen chemistry, uh, was was really strong, and and never like, you know, the, there's the the scene near the end where they they share a kiss, and it kind of leads to like this this fight between them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, up to that point, I was just kind of enjoying being with their their relationship and the, and their respect for each other as people who are really like trying to deal with their their grief and their trauma in different ways, and that that part of the movie actually like kind of just felt like they like threw it in like I, I i understand where they were kind of going for it, and it leads to like the m- moment where jay lost is like i just felt so bad for you thing which i think is yeah. Tough. Yeah, yeah that that was really tough to to sit through but effective for the movie and um I, yeah I, I i think i just kind of left being like two good actors just kind of doing what two good actors do and i really enjoyed that mm-hmm. yeah i think there, there's only so much to really like latch on to you know um brian tidry henry he had been doing more franchisey stuff lately. Like he was in bullet train eternals, you know, kind of getting some bags, but he's always been good. And this kind of reminds me of like Brian Tyree Henry in if Beale Street could talk where he is just mm. a strong presence all the time. I think he nailed the like deep South accent, the Bayou at Southern accent, by the way, like the, 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 the vocals, he was there, the, you know, words, the, the worries laying down on that sounded great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like, like it's a movie about trauma and grief and these people coming, both coming from like really tough experiences in their lives. Lawrence's character, a a traumatic brain injury, you know, like, and yet it's not like one of those movies with, you know, some of the more cliche, like blow up scenes doesn't have that. So I think you just kind of have to sit there with those performances and just kind of be with that relationship because that's really all this movie is is those two characters coming into each other's lives and through ups and downs kind of helping each other progress in their lives so um i mean shout out apple i guess you know it's a, it's a nice movie to have to pick up and looking forward to lawrence doing more stuff like this and just kind of showcasing and reminding everyone just how talented she actually is when she's actually like with some like strong material yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I, I have to say, probably the moment that I found to be most, most emotionally like moving was the scene between uh, Lindsay and her brother when she goes to visit him in prison, which I, I think is intentional. But having him not only be a uh, person who can't hear, but also, um, you know, having that like no music would put behind that scene just kind of sitting with this conversation really like making you like tune into the movie i thought that was really well done and really effective um I'm trying to remember what the brother's name was i think it was justin um mm-hmm. yeah played by russell uh, harvard it's a bit and, of a bit of a like they sneak it up on you too because there's that whole yeah. scene where he's like your brother's dead he's like no he's not dead he's in prison and it's like kind of a surprise you'd kind of yeah. assume he's out of the picture but he's out of the picture in a different way I think yeah, I thought that was really great. And um, I, I like that the movie doesn't really like uh, it makes you sit with it all, which is, is tough at times, you know, hearing um, uh, James talk about 
the, the death of his family in the car accident that you know it was his fault um hearing her talk about the trauma which is just a reminder of how far i think um medicine and psychology has come in terms of like dealing with people post the trauma the fact that the doctor was just like tell me exactly what happened like tell me your your, i was like that this is so unethical kinley henderson he's always great play henderson 15 years later would be handled hopefully much differently but yeah i thought i thought the movie was just overall really like thoughtful and well done but like you said a small movie so maybe not a ton to dig into beyond the surface anyways let's keep it moving uh dave bringing the people the content that they need saw after sun this weekend the paul mezcal movie that we've all been waiting for since normal people dave take it away yeah after sun kind of a movie that snuck up on me this is an a24 film just came out in limited release a few weeks back actually debuted back at Cannes, and was one of the most critically adored films of Cannes, which is obviously no small feat in any year and it's finally coming out and this is the debut from a new filmmaker charlotte wells who i don't really know too much about but of course stars paul mescal and Gosh, is is this his first big film role? It might be. He's been so. casting a lot of stuff. This is probably one of, if not the first thing to really come out since normal people, of course, catapulted him to stardom in early 2020. And man, it's um, you know, I just knew it was well liked. I didn't really know much about it going in, and knew knew it was something to see. And it's you know, it's a, it's a small film, but I think the filmmaking approach and the screenplay kind of surprises you in a good way like it, it, it's unconventional and it, the story is quite simple to wrap your head around where it's paul mescal plays a young father and is you know like like paul's age like early 30s and he's taking his 11 year old daughter sophie on a vacation to turkey because i believe they're coming from the uk and that's like because it's a, it's a vacation that uh callum paul mescal's character he can he, he can he can afford it right and he's just kind of going with his daughter. He's no longer uh, in a relationship with the mom, although they are cordial. And the movie is framed as uh, Sophie, as an adult, kind of looking back on her memories and some video footage of this time she went on this trip with her dad. And she's kind of like reflecting back on things she knew and didn't know about her dad and maybe things she could try and find out through the footage and of course, things she she couldn't have known or picked up on as only an eleven year old at the time, and like the way it like frames, I think memory and uh, recorded footage as like a framing device is pretty interesting. But most of the film is really in that memory time where you're no longer in like grainy footage. It's just we're in in picture with Paul Mescal and Sophie as an eleven year old played by uh, Frankie Corio, who I thought was really good for a child performer. And yeah, it's just like it's not exactly like coming of age for Sophie per se. It's just like a few days at this kind of like resort area and some other ancillary characters come in, but you never quite know like what's going to happen with the characters and, and, and Mescal as Callum, he, you can tell that he's a character, a character with like things going on in his life. Unsurprising for a young father, but it's, it's not concerned about like telling you, 
uh, the answers to all those questions. That's like not like what the movie is about at all. It's more about like the, I think, search for like meaning through like the lens of Sophie's experience. It's it's kind of a lot to sit with, but ultimately like a really like humanistic movie, um, which Barry Jenkins actually is one of the producers on it, which makes some sense given the subject matter. Uh, there is an amazing queen under pressure needle drop towards the end of this film, a long drop, by the way, it really hits. I think it's a really emotional moment. Um, yeah. And I think if you're into those kind of more, uh, I don't want to say moody in a negative way, because there's plenty of energy in this movie, but let's it's a more of an emotional, it's less about plot type story. I think you should definitely check out after sun. It's uh, definitely unique. You know, I, I, when you said a column, I thought for a second you might have gotten uh, normal people confused with Connell. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's nice to have Paul Mezcal back. And I'm really excited to uh, catch this one whenever I get the chance to. Because uh, I think he's a performer that I just feel like has a lot of potential to be in our lives for a long time. And, um, you know, he's he's one of those people that has such a, a distinct face that mm-hmm. it's like you could see him really becoming a movie star, even though he's not like conventionally handsome, I guess you would say, you know, like it's not Brad Pitt looks, but he's not Daisy uh, Edgar Jones. Uh, well, no one's as ugly as her, Dave. So, <laughs> uh, and anyone that's listening that doesn't know that's a, that's a joke for go watch the normal people review. But anyways, let's, uh, let's keep it moving. You know, uh, we, we're going to go from Paul Mezcal, one of the heartthrobs in the UK to another UK heartthrob Harry Styles, my policeman. We've been talking about him a lot this year. There Dave. goes that man once again. Uh, I mean, he's having quite the the 2022 so far. Huge album, two huge movies, uh, blowing up all over TikTok during his tour. Um, he's everywhere. Every, people love Harry Styles, and he keeps pushing his way and just pushing his way into movies. And just always kind of feels like, is this really the right direction for him? <laughs> and that brings us to My Policeman, um, directed by Michael Grandage, starring Styles, Emma Corinne, uh, and Linus uh, Rocha. Uh, no, sorry, David Dawson. Um, mm-hmm. I was looking at the other. Emma Corrin, of course, famous for being Diana on The Crown on Netflix. And so <laughs> a lot of anticipation about this movie, I think especially because when we talked about Harry uh, a few weeks back with, um, boy, I'm blanking on the name. Don't Sorry, worry, don't worry darling. darling. Of course, Bro, don't you worry, worried. darling. Uh, I, was, I was not so worried just because uh, nothing to be worried about here. But um, there was rumors that, you know, his performance there got kind of panned, you know, but. This my, my policeman is really going to show off his acting chops. He's, they, they they definitely said he was better in my policeman than Don't Worry Darling. That was a pretty common refrain when Don't Worry Darling came out, which we also reviewed. Check that out. But now my policeman is out. Uh, was in limited release. Now it's out on Amazon Prime Video. Anyone can watch it. And Pat was Harry Styles better than he Fuck was no. in Don't Worry Darling. Fuck no, Dave. This uh, this is like it he comes across as like very nice in every scene and like mm-hmm. pretty affable, like overall, but you know, it, there's just no substance to him as a character. And, and he should be 
the most interesting character in this whole movie, you know, is Tom, the middle of this love triangle uh, between Patrick uh, and Marion, his wife. A policeman. Yeah, in, in a, a bisexual person in the 1950s. Um, mm. He should be a person that we're learning a lot about and that we're exploring, like, what it means to be in, in this love triangle, what it means to be a bisexual person during this time, and especially because it seems like um, the his his gay fantasies and, and his gay uh, proclivities are things that he was not aware of up until meeting this person. And it just kind of yeah. gets like whitewashed and it's like, okay, all of a sudden he's bisexual and he's cool with it. And, you know, after like a five minute, like, drunken scene it's like okay now this is just who he is uh i just people come to those conclusions in many ways that's true among us but yeah i agree that it's definitely a movie that lacks substance you know i think just overall like harry aside my policeman is just a very straightforward period gay drama meaning you know everything that's going to happen because it's set in the past Queer people can't be themselves. They are going to be persecuted and targeted by the police and shunned by society. Sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Nothing new shown here. And there's nothing even that fun about the stuff that's not solemn and dreary. Because, like, the sex scenes aren't steamy at all, you know? They're super tame. And, like, how do you, how do you like, not show dick? In, in, in the nudity scenes. Like, are we still doing this? Like, yeah. it's a gay relationship, and they don't show any dick? Are you kidding me? I gotta be honest, because the, the first time that they, like, actually hook up, I think they only, they barely even show them kissing, and I was like, oh, they're really gonna, like, do this behind closed doors. They're just not even gonna commit. And then the, there's a few scenes where you at least, like, see them, like, riding each other and things like that. So I was like, ah, yeah. oh, this is as close as I bet Harry Was that really Harry's ass, get. or was it a prosthetic? I don't know, but his wig was great in this. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> and I think the, the the thing that could have been the saving grace for my policeman was the fact that there is this um, present day uh, setting in the in the in the script where we're with these three characters as older adults. So you know that like nobody dies, but you know things do happen from where they all are situated, and that perhaps could have had a way to frame the story in a more interesting way, but I don't think it adds really much, if anything at all. And like, you know, spoilers, but like at the, the ending, ending few f- frames where it's like the, the reconciliation of sorts. I just, I just don't think it really lands because they just don't do enough work in the past tense stories to like make that relationship feel like a whole lot. It's really just kind of going through these motions that you very quickly recognize. And there's just little else to really liven it up. I don't mind conventional stories, things I can predict. I don't care if it's fun to be with and interesting, but this just wasn't that, enjoyable to to sit with you know and nor is it like a great statement on like uh you know queer life back in the day it's 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 really it has nothing going for it yeah you know having the older actors you you think that there's going to be some sort of explanation as to like the feelings that tom has with patrick being you know so sick but he really is just angry and it's never totally, at least I, maybe I missed it, but is it explained why, like, he's 
so angry at Patrick, even though like the way things left off were like Patrick was in jail and Tom just wouldn't go see him and is like, okay, I need to like commit to my straight marriage now. Like it, it, it just kind of felt like those feelings weren't explained at all. And then, um, you know, you get the scene where um, older Patrick or sorry, older Tom is crying in the car because he sees the, the gay couple walking by and it's, you know, pretty clear that he's like not letting himself actually explore these feelings um i i i think that whole piece was kind of a mess and then you know in thinking about like marion as a character um it's pretty like black and white with her which is kind of surprising given that she's somebody who you know is like very interested in art and um you know it's not necessarily at the beginning of the movie painted as like a you know prim and proper little schoolgirl. like she's definitely like in some ways like flirting with patrick when she doesn't know that he's gay and like it it seems like there's like you know this edginess or this like other side to her and then pretty quickly she just like turns and is like no i can't accept gay people at all which just feels kind of out of left field as well especially the scene with her friend who's like you really like don't know I'm gay as well. Like, yeah, <laughs> just a, a lot just of like, like, she was just like jealous and like basic petty shit, you know, it's like, okay. Yeah. There's just like really not a lot there to hold on to. I'm even trying to think about like the scenes, like, you know, I thought, for example, their marriage scene, right. Where you see that like the wedding and Patrick has to give a toast. I was like, Oh, there's going to be something here. He's going to like drop some hints or something. No, just right. a pretty straightforward toast. Like, Hey, you guys are a great couple. Okay. What Way better in House of the Dragon, where you get all yeah. the side eye and the people figuring shit out. There's nothing going on in my policeman. Yeah, there's just nothing here, man. Um, yeah, I mean Styles. I mean, obviously tapped to be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe mm-hmm. moving that, forward. That's the only thing on his schedule. Not that he has a specific movie coming up for that yet, but like he has no other projects publicized at this time. Yeah, I mean. I don't I don't even know what I would want him to do. I guess maybe like go do some bit parts in some you know, uh ensemble films. Like you think about like when when Christopher Nolan did Inception and Tom Hardy really just like blows off the screen. You think something like that where he just gets to come in for like a few scenes, be super charming and just yeah. like be like electric for like one or two moments because he's obviously handsome so he could he could pull it off if he had the role and he had the chops to do it but maybe he just doesn't have the chops we don't know yeah i feel like something like that would be like the layup for him though all this other stuff is like you're really exposing yourself you're yeah you're way out of your depth with something (laughs) this dramatic and this aspirational like this is definitely not it and grandage only has one other film uh to his name he's a very prolific uh, British uh, stage director. And I feel like he you know, uh, was a little out of his depth on this as well, because, you know, the last one was uh, a movie that had Jude Law and Colin um, Farrell in it called Genius. And uh, I think having those actors, you know, you, you can kind of clean up some of a uh, uh, director's inexperience, but this is just like the, the direction, the writing on this just did not work out as at all. So, nope. Anyways, Dave, I'm going to pass you the rock back because it's time to talk about Armageddon time. Yes, sir. James Gray, back again. Armageddon time, his first film since 2019's Ad Astra, which we, of course, did cover. As well as the movie before that, we talked about Lost City of Z. So 
James Gray kind of back to, I think, more of his roots as a filmmaker back in New York City, more of a smaller in scope story than something as hard sci-fi as Ad Astra still was, even if it was a weighty, more James Gray type movie. And Armageddon Time, um, I think, got a lot of anticipation just because it has a quite the stellar cast, you know, Anthony Hopkins, Jeremy Strong, Anne Hathaway. Uh, tough to argue with that. And I think probably the biggest headline about it would be that this is like a memoir type story. James Gray uh, putting himself uh, into into our story here. Peter, uh, or sorry, Paul Graff is our lead character, but he's really just a stand-in for James Gray as a sixth grader in 1980 in Queens. That's where we are. And I think it's a movie that it maybe doesn't go anywhere that you can't like, it doesn't necessarily shock you or anywhere it goes, but I think it's quite earnest in how it approaches everything. And despite it being like autobiography, basically on Gray's part, it doesn't necessarily like let anyone off the hook or pull any punches with its conclusion. And really the crux of the movie, I think the reason the movie is successful would be an unsurprising reason, which would be that the two child performances are really strong. We very rarely see that, but you have two youth performances really carrying the movie for the most part, where young Paul, played by uh, Banks Rapetta, meets uh, Johnny, played by Jalen Webb, at school in sixth grade. And uh, Paul is white, and Johnny is black. Paul comes from a you know middle class but comfortable uh, Jewish family in Queens, and Johnny he finds out doesn't really have much uh, family support. Parents not really in the picture at all, and they kind of become kindred spirits when they both realize they're more or less like space cadets, head in the clouds types that don't really like listening to their teacher, and they kind of support each other when they take turns goofing off and. They start getting punished at school together and things like that. And they become genuine friends. And the way Armageddon time kind of rolls out is Johnny. It's still the Paul story. It's still the James Gray story. So Johnny is still a bit of a plot device more than his own character. But it's, I guess, the the Paul character's way of learning about how race functions in society and uh, how things happen to you depends on who you know and what you look like and him kind of learning that is a dumb sixth grader who doesn't know anything about the world. It's still kind of unflinching and about like the conclusions it takes. But, you know, I, I think the, the way the movie kind of gets you to this point is pretty enjoyable because eventually we get taken out of that public school and Johnny and Paul get separated just due to some acting out and Paul gets sent off to, uh, private school where his older brother goes and of course this is funded by uh, grandpa and grandma grandpa played by anthony hopkins they, they they immigrants that are trying to pay it forward with the later generations and send their kids up to uh, private school to get that seat at the table you know as a uh, jewish immigrants fleeing eastern europe they uh, didn't have much but now that they are more successful they're trying to change things for the rest of their family and it's a bit on the nose, but it's also memoiristic where, and it's tough to really quibble with, where you get this this scene at the private school 
where uh, on, on day one, when Paul's first day, once he's been sent there, and Paul uh, comes face to face with someone who's like a connected to the school, not a teacher. He's like, he talks to him in the hallway, uh, gets sent off to the auditorium. He finds out that person he's talking to is Fred Trump, Donald Trump's oh, dad. Wow. And then uh, you have a sparkling cameo, one scene cameo where uh, Marianne Trump, Donald Trump's uh, older sister, uh, speaks to the students and gives a, a un- unsurprisingly dog whistly speech about uh, you know status and mobility in society as only you could expect from uh, someone like her. Justine, really good. Definitely looks like her. Has the same hair haircut and everything. Uh, but it's like one of those move, one of those scenes where it's like you as the audience like know what it means, but you don't really know if Paul as a sixth grade idiot knows what it means, you know? And I think that's what I appreciate a lot about like James Gray's approach to telling a story where like, he doesn't shy away from the fact that like, he was like jerk to his parents as a dipshit kid. And it's very ungrateful and also really didn't know what was going on while this very unfortunate circumstance was beginning to happen around him in terms of his uh, friendship with Johnny. And you know, things happen and Paul really firsthand sees what's, you know, what happens when you're uh, white versus when you're not. Um, I think the best scene in the movie, probably like the highlight reel of the film would be this scene on the park bench. That's actually your background where Paul and Grant and his grandpa go to like the park to shoot off a model rocket they made. And Anthony Hopkins gives, I think this really awesome performance where he basically tells Paul to like stand up to bullies and fight against inequality. And like, he kind of like explains about like what his life had been like growing up as a Jewish person. And, you know, kind of, and the movie I think is pretty interested in like assimilation into society uh, for like how you can like get away with it when you're Jewish. Fred Trump literally like makes a remark to Paul when Paul says that the family name used to be like, uh, Grafinowitz or whatever, something more outwardly Jewish, and they switch their name to Graf so that they could, you know, blend in. So it's a movie with a lot of like, I think like moralistic thoughts going on, but I do appreciate that it doesn't really let anyone off the hook at the end. Ultimately, the Johnny character is a bit of a plot device. It's still the Paul story. It's still the James Gray story. But you know, I think with, with with amazing production design, period detail. And of course, Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway as Paul's parents, like it's still like really high level. And even if I think the conclusions might not be as 10 out of 10, like high minded as they might want to be for like an autobiography, autobiographical type like drama, like I think it's there's still a lot to like about it. Um, Doesn't make you feel good too much, (laughs) but it's a good movie. It's uh, it's a good look for Jeremy Strong. Last time we saw him was Trial of the Chicago 7. And he's going to be in Maestro uh, next year. So he's getting mm-hmm. some some big screen roles. Obviously, Succession is still his main vehicle. But I'm looking forward to seeing this one. Uh, Gray is a director that I think everybody should be bought into at this point. But if yeah. you're not, like, it sounds like this is a movie that can definitely win you some points. So uh, let's, uh, let's keep it moving, though. Dave, you talked about how Armageddon Time didn't really give you the good feels. Banshees of Vera Sheeran, um, a, a little bit more of a mixed bag, I'd say, but 
you know, definitely not a movie that I think many people walk away from with uh, a big smile on their face. This is a big movie this year. Martin McDonough's most recent movie, obviously the director of In Bruges and more notably Three Billboards uh, mm-hmm. a few years back. Um, you know, this is a movie that's getting a lot of acclaim. Um, is sitting at 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, being talked about for awards. Obviously, you have Colin Farrell starring in this um, alongside uh, Brendan Gleeson mm-hmm. and uh, Carrie Condon, I think would be, and, and Barry Keegan, of course, our guy yeah. Barry. Um, this is a really impressive movie that I left in the drive home from the theater the whole time was like, that did not make me feel good at all. <laughs> not, not really one bit. And I, that's not what I expected. So I think my first reaction was, fuck that movie, man. Poor Jenny. I fucking need justice for Jenny. Pour one out but, for my guy, Jenny. Yeah. But uh, I think as I've sat with it more today, I'm just really like impressed with it overall. And I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to like digging more into it. But I just want to hear your initial like reactions after seeing it. Yeah. You know, I think going in, knowing that it had a lot of acclaim, I was definitely hopeful and, first martin mcdonough movie since three billboards you know bit of uh bit, bit riding on that because three billboards despite its pluses ultimately got a lot of criticism for kind of being like the foreigner's take on what's wrong with america you know francis mcdormand still great in it but like it was a movie that like the premise of it i think started running people the wrong way once we got deeper into award season and Banshee's even Sheeran, I think is a lot closer to in Bruges, you know, which also happens to star Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson and seems to be much more in sync with that Martin McDonough career path to this point, of course, of prolific, uh, uh, playwright as well. The Banshee's of in Sheeran as a title is not that far off from, uh, the, what is it? The, cripple of inishman and the lieutenant of inishmore which are two of his plays so it definitely seemed like this could have been a play at one time and probably would translate pretty easily to the stage as well i did like it i think you're right that it's it's a black comedy with some really strong like like there's really good humor in this but it's also a movie that has like a lot of darkness and you kind of like dwell and sit in that darkness in unexpected ways. And that's why I'm, I'm pretty uh, happy with it where it's just really, I think unconventional, like, like story on its face. And it just doesn't do what I think it's going to do. And when you have all this talent here too, like I think all, all the key performances are really strong and um, it just, it kind of just like kind of sets you up to sit with like its meaning and doesn't really hold your hand with anything. And I, I definitely really respect it. And uh, I saw it in a decently full theater. You know, I'd say there's probably like 40 people in there. And I don't know, the theater experience, I think, really elevated the humor for me. Like there were some like mo- moments where like people were dying. Like there was like, this hilarious lines. Usually Colin Farrell as Padraig was really doling out some stuff with his earnestness and just saying things so matter-of-factly that you can't help but laugh. But yeah, overall, I, I liked it for its uh, unexpected qualities. Yeah, I, I thought the humor, at least I was dying laughing at a lot of it. You know, I opened the show talking about the, you know, no, just a regular good chat 
not not an aimless chat, just regular good chat. Like I, that had really had me dying. Just go to the pub and have a chats. Yeah, we always did. <laughs> um, but I, I I thought the the first half of this, the humor is great. Um, and and it really like keeps the movie going because I think if if the tone of the second half of the movie were the tone throughout this would have been a really tough watch because mm-hmm. uh, the basically when when uh, Siobhan like decides like yeah. she's gonna leave and then, sister and then uh column uh, cuts his, the the rest of his fingers off the movie just takes a really really dark turn at that point and mm-hmm. uh it's uh it, the this place that seemed so like picturesque you know the whole time this i mean the the panoramic shots and just like the way that mcdonough shows this island uh, off the coast of ireland is like amazing and beautiful and you know i think one of the comments that i really agree with i've seen a lot of uh feedback about this movie is just like his filmmaking abilities just seem to like really like be growing and his ability mm, to like yeah. um use the scenery and, and um, kind of setting is just really impressive but this place that seems so picturesque just shifts into being like this prison you know that conversation that column and siobhan have about like why are you doing this like why why do you have to be so drastic cutting your fingers off are you depressed you know and he mm. kind of talks about how some days it feels like he's just like doing anything to like stop himself from actually like killing himself is kind of like the underlying and he's right. like, don't you feel like that too and siobhan's like no and he's like you do and like just kind <laughs> of like you know it's kind of like said that like these people on this island unless you are like Padrick, um you probably are realizing that you're kind of like stuck and this is your life and it's it's really like just shifts the movie completely and i thought it was really effective and Mm -hmm. um obviously then seeing the way that their relationship and and podrick's journey kind of tailspins from there is just gutting right yeah i mean to have like your lead protagonist played by colin farrell to have podrick be someone who's just like earnest and nice but also just dim and simple as a Mm -hmm. human like it's like a really smart choice. Then you contrast that with Colm. Brendan Gleeson obviously has a lot of presence, but he's a character that is much more reserved, but is just completely lost in his like purpose in life. Whereas Podrick just has never been concerned with that. And I really like how that's all contrasted with the backdrop of the Irish civil war. We're taking place uh, in 1923 rural village on this Island off the coast, you know, Inishirin is a fictional island, but Inishir is a real island in I- off Ireland. Don't know why the name was changed, but um, <laughs> the fact that like the war is happening from the very first like few scenes, where like there's explosions just right across the water, right on the coast, like the 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 shit's going down. But these people on the island, they don't give a fuck. It doesn't concern them at all. They're on the island, and like it's, it's presented as like, oh, what a what a what a perk to be yeah. above it all on this picturesque place. But then, like you said, it's actually presented as, no, this is something that really reigns in almost everyone that's here. Mm-hmm. And I think to get to that point when our inciting incident in the movie is just that Colm just, just don't like you no more. Like, that's how it starts. Mm-hmm. But it's about so much more than that. And we get there in a unexpected way through some graphic ultra violence that really sneaks up on you you know it's mm-hmm. i can't help but be be pretty impressed you know there uh, i think the like metaphor of these two people right 
um, it's something that a lot of people, uh, I'd say more so adults, can relate to. You know, do you like cut out these parts of your life that don't feel like you're really like getting a lot out of it, or feel like you're benefiting from spending time with? Or do you kind of like say, fuck it, like life is short and just kind of like enjoy the time you got no matter what that looks like. And uh, I think, you know, obviously for most people to balance, it's uh, it's about the gray area, but these two characters identifying these extremes make the movie completely relatable right off the bat. And then, you know, you get the dynamic of the, the village people around them as their dynamic has shifted <laughs> and like what it means for all of them. I love in the beginning when he's like, are you, are you, are you having a row? I didn't think we were having a row. I, mean, I think we're having a row. I think we're having a row. <laughs> yeah, the, so, the bartender's great. Uh, the policeman, you love to hate him. Of course, the father of yeah. Barry Keon's character, Barry playing kind of the the village like miscreant, just kind of uh, doesn't have a whole lot of support at home. Obviously, his dad doesn't like him, but he also just doesn't really get up to much, hasn't made much of his life kind of character. Um. The other people in the bar, the fiddle or fiddle players, you know, the woman in town who's a gossip queen, like mm-hmm. they're small, small roles, small parts, but they're all really colored in nicely. And of course, you have the uh, older woman playing the almost like literal like witch, like demon banshee figure who yeah. has just some hilarious like drop ins. Like I was loving everything with her. <laughs> Me too. I really I mean. I, I've seen some people be lukewarm on her. I thought she was great. I love when um, so funny when he's like, "That's not a very nice thing to say," and she's like, "I wasn't trying to be nice. I was trying to be <laughs> accurate." I was like, "Yes, I love this amazing line." Also, you you didn't even mention my favorite like supporting character, which is the priest. I feel like everything oh. with the priest was just like so fucking hysterical. Cursing and confession can't beat it, man. Kick, he kicks Colum out of confession. Doesn't doesn't let him actually like get absolved of his sins. Amazing move. <laughs> Love that. Um, yeah, it was that was great. Um, yeah, I mean, all the supporting characters are fantastic, and I really love how you have like all these guys and then really like the only woman that really gets like any kind of media role at all is uh mm. carrie condon siobhan um yep. Podrick's sister and i think her journey throughout the movie is so like essential as like it kind of what we talked about how most people are kind of this like middle of the road between these two characters right because siobhan is someone who when Podrick's like why don't you come down and have a sherry like she lights up. She's like so excited. Like, you know, what? yeah, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go have like a good time with you. Have a drink. And then there's also obviously her desire to have a career and to mm-hmm. like have more to her life than just this island. And she ends up pursuing that, even though her leaving is completely gutting. Like, right. I think that that role and the way that, the, again, that conversation between her and, and Colm where, you know, she's like all of this is silly. Like everything that you're doing is like ridiculous and just boys like killing time. You're not actually doing anything anyway. And like how she calls him out for like not knowing when Mozart is like, she gets so many like awesome little like lines and gets so many like great moments. I really, really came away with like loving Karen Condon's performance in this. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Yeah, she's great. And it's a, the Siobhan role is written. It's much stronger than just the maternalistic figure to our lead character. She has, she has real substance in her own arc, which is great. Barry Keown as the other big supporting yeah. character. I mean, he's just a beast at playing like fucking weirdos now. Like, I love him, dude. He's so great. So and 
obviously this is an all-star Irish cast from an Irish filmmaker. Um, of course he's here. You know, it makes all the sense in the world. And I'm really happy that he's going to get a lot of shine with this because, you know, it has probably hasn't happened yet, but we're going to see like some really big stuff from him. I have no doubt. Um, and I really loved everything about him. Some of the humor, like early on when he's just like haplessly hitting on Siobhan, he has no idea what to say or what to do or can't pick up on any social cue at all from her. She's trying to let him down easy. You know, that stuff is great. But even just like the, the more humorous stuff too, where he's just like bouncing off Podrick and he, he like genuinely feels betrayed when he realizes that Podrick was starting to escalate and like get more mean about stuff. That's why he got mad because Podrick was being mean about it, you know? Um, you mentioned Jenny at the beginning, but like the animals between Podrick's pony and Colm's dog, yeah, they both actually have like big parts uh, in their own way, which you wouldn't expect from uh, animal characters, quote unquote, in a film. Like starts off, Jenny is just some really great humor when Podrick mm -hmm. likes to let the pony inside and Siobhan's like, what the fuck are we doing? Why is the animal in the house? Yeah. And Podrick's referencing about the, what he can find in, in the pony shit and how interesting it can be. But it, th then where, where we end up with the pony and with, and with the dog to a lesser the extent donkey, too. By the way. Donkey, sorry. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. He mentions he has a pony early on, but Jenny yeah. is a donkey. Right. A little donkey. Yep. Like where we get to with the, with the animals also quite surprised me yeah and i i think what like the animals represent for this island where there's like you don't see any children right so i think that's a very intentional decision in this i mean dominic is probably the youngest person you see throughout the movie maybe some of the other people in the bar from time to time i can't remember right. if like when they go to the the docks maybe there's some running around but anyways these these animals are supposed to represent like this the, the, like like their children basically and even when podrick is like all right like two o'clock tomorrow i'm gonna come burn your fucking house down he takes the dog you know he takes care of the dog and that being like this like point on where their relationship is left off at the end you know that conversation on the beach is so like pointed but there's obviously like something fractured about that relationship that could never be the same but that like anytime when he's like thanks for watching my dog it's just such a like a, a bit of an uplift it's like you kind of needed that because if the movie just ends with him being like some things are like irreparably changed mm -hmm. and like it's probably better that way it's like oh or he like slits his throat or something oh, you know God. it's like holy shit like this all could have been like just so heavy but i thought it's a nice like kind of light at the end of the tunnel in a way mm -hmm. um yeah you know i i really like a like I said, I've just kind of been impressed with this. It's a movie that I think I had to be in a very specific mood to go back to just because it is pretty heavy and like uh, definitely um, didn't leave me feeling very good afterwards. But I mean, I th there's some performances in here that I think are probably going to get nominated. At least I think Farrell seems like a lock to get a nomination. Right. I agree. Yeah. I, he's definitely the most bankable for best actor. Best actor is still pretty, pretty tight, but I wouldn't bank on the win, at least not yet. But I mean, I'm very happy to see this from Colin Farrell because we've talked about it honestly quite a bit, but he's really come into his own partially as a character actor, but also just as someone who's making great choices and just seems like at peak of powers these days where he is constantly one of, if not the best 
performance on screen and like everything he's in the past like five ten years it feels like you know even in like direct like fantastic beasts he's like elevating it as best he can you know he, he's been really crushing it but then like this year too after yang and banshee's even a sheer and talking about a big year for him uh and really you didn't even mention his best role the batman dog the, of course the penguin loved i love him as the penguin he was he's great great and unrecognizable. Uh, do you think Gleason gets a nomination for this? I have to, I have to like brush up on the supporting race, but he's definitely in the mix for sure. Again, McDonough got a lot of nominations last time around. He's was was quite celebrated in 2017. So I'd have to imagine, to a certain degree, that'll continue. This also is a Searchlight release, so this will have a lot of push behind it when the time comes. So. And of course, I think Brendan Gleeson, you know, he's not nearly as famous as Colin Farrell, not even close, but he's always someone that when he's in American films, he uh, really, I think, makes an impression. Of course, most populously would be Harry Potter, but he's been in obviously loads of things for decades at this point. And I think that would also be quite the nod to him after a storied career to this point to get a nomination to. I think uh, when award season comes around, I'll be riding to get that Carrie Condon um, supporting actress nom. Mm-hmm. But I think if there's one other nomination that I think feels pretty safe from this movie, um, I, I mean, McDonough would probably be a good call. But also cinematography, I think this will yeah. be up there. It's just so gorgeous. That opening shot where they're like going over the field and you see like all the like walls and delineations of the property, I thought was just amazing. So. Yeah. I think more than anything, McDonough is probably safest for his writing. I think screenplay is probably the best, best one, best individual quality of this movie is that unconventional screenplay. So I'd probably bank on that first. Best director, maybe not, not as likely, but uh, would certainly be well earned for original screenplay. Absolutely, Dave. Any last thoughts on Banshees of Ear Sharon? Definitely see it. I think yeah. it's. I mean, it, it's unique and yeah. has a lot of a lot of things to like about it. So def- def- definitely worth is, people's time. I think this is going to be one of those movies that people don't see in theaters when that Christmas like lull comes around. A lot of people are going to be watching it at home with their families and to get yeah. it <laughs> quite the surprise when they're like, you know, post Christmas. Uh, oh, let's, let's watch a movie together and then dripping. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, we're going to shift gears into the music realm with our guys, Phoenix. They're back after five years. Dave, we talked about TMO back in 2017. That was like early pod days. That was like when we first started doing video. First video year. Back in the day. And now they're back. And uh, Dave, are you happy to have Phoenix back? Honestly, yes. You know, shout out the nation of France giving us Phoenix because (laughs) I thought Alpha Zulu was good. Yeah. I thought it was was really good. You know, (laughs) know? uh, TMO... (laughs) was a bit of um i wouldn't say let down but it just was like i don't know felt shift. A, yeah i felt it was a shift it felt a little listless it felt a way more poppy than anything we had gotten from them so it was like huh how are we making sense of this and alpha zulu i think is them really coming into their own with this um i think it should be like noted that it seems like they had some some really strong collaborators on this and one of them is in one of the songs Ezra Koenig but they really just seem to be kind of pulling in this new poppier dancier sound with like some classical phoenix like uh guitars and drums and it feels very familiar but also like fun and exciting yeah so I, I found 
this would be a really enjoyable al- album. I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed a rock album, Dave, especially after you skewered the Backseat Lovers last week. Tell me what you <laughs> liked about Alpha Zulu. Well, I think this is Phoenix, which, you know, I, I, I know the hits like, you know, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, that that sound from then their breakout album, like 1901 Listomania, people know those hits, but like that's the kind of like indie music that I've always liked the most when it comes to indie music. I, I, I like the indie pop stuff more than the indie rock stuff. And Alpha Zulu just really felt like the indie pop that I like. Sounded like it. And, you know, it's a brisk thirty minutes, but honestly I thought every song was good. Like I, I quite enjoyed it. I think a big part of that is, per most per most of my indie opinions, I love the tempo on Alpha Zulu. Um, they they keep it moving, but the songs are are almost always quite lively. And uh, Thomas Mars, he he just is a fun vocalist as well, which I think is a big part of me liking indie music. So, yeah, I I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, and I think it starts right off from the title track in the first song, Alpha Zulu, where you have those like kind of like spacey, chilly, like synth drums coming in. And then just like the overall like vibe of the song kind of remains that chilliness. But you have just Phoenix like with uh, these amazing like uh, not only vocals, but like they're like shared like energy in the song really comes through especially in the second half i felt like and it's a catchy tune like who ha singing hallelujah yeah, like, fun vocals for sure yeah totally gets you right off the bat and then probably my favorite song on the album unsurprising is the second song tonight with yeah. ezra koenig which feels like phoenix and like the newest version of vampire weekend made a baby together and uh <laughs> it it was just everything i wanted father and... of the zulu bride yeah there you go nailed it um yeah, I just really enjoyed that, and I think I think it just elevated them. And I, I hope they do more collaborations together because I feel like there's a lot more there to dig into. Um, the the drum build up on that uh, leading up to the chorus is so fun, and then it just has like this classical like Phoenix guitar riff in the chorus, but also like the like funky bass of the Father of the Bride from um, Vampire Weekend, just really great. Um, so th- those two right off the bat caught me, but tell me about the songs that you enjoyed on this. I like those two songs quite a bit as well, and I thought Alpha Zulu title tracks starting you right off. It's like, like oh, oh, cool tempo yeah. bass, let's go, <laughs> love it. Um, I think Ezra sounds great on tonight. It's like awesome, mm-hmm. like vocal pairing there when he comes in on the back half of the song. Um, I also quite liked Artifact. And uh, Winter Solstice, you know, that one has some slower moments, but I really like the way the song kind of builds itself back up towards the end, really still brought me back around. Um, Yeah, I think just overall, like, the tempo is really consistent uh, in a good way. Um, Identical was actually a song I had heard before because it had released like two years ago in a shorter version because it was on the soundtrack to the Sofia Coppola movie on the rocks. Sofia Coppola, of course, the partner of Thomas Mars. So identical actually came out a few more minutes tacked on added to the end of this track list. Funny enough. But um, I think more than anything, I was like, wow, like to hear the seventh album from a band that's been going for over 20 years and to actually like be this satisfied. Mm-hmm. It's pretty rare. 
you know, definitely pretty rare. I just wanted to say great call on artifact. I really love just like the, like, like Cynthia's guitar on that is really great. And I, I think they like have the best Phoenix like guitar riffs on that. that are just like, so like short and concise, but like fit perfectly to the song. I really liked um after midnight, the song before winter solstice a lot. thought that one was really like zippy and fun. Reminded me of a lot, like list of many in a way. So I thought that's probably why I really enjoyed it. Overall, I agree with you. I think this album just is great start to finish and it's quick listen. So people should check it out. We'll be adding a song to our Spotify playlist, Nostalgia Best of 2022. Um, we're also going to be putting a song from Joji on there. He dropped his newest album, Smithereens. It's been two years since we last listened to a Joji album with Nectar. You know, it, Joji's interesting because his his rise i think wasn't something a lot of people would have expected especially given his like personality before he really like yeah. dove into music youtube roots filthy frank and I've, i i watched him perform live at coachella this past year uh you know how they, they stream all the concerts his live singing still not very good but he makes great albums and great songs so <laughs> i think he's the kind of artist i probably wouldn't go see uh live but i'll just enjoy the albums for that reason studio recordings though and yeah the studio recordings are great and dave i'm wondering if you felt like that continued on smithereens yeah i mean smithereens it's 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 so so quick you know what is it 25 minutes like yeah i'm three from him and i don't know if it necessarily like changed my opinion on joji at all but it's just like more proof more evidence that he is a fully fledged artist and really knows his way around some of the more ballady song constructions, you know, lest we forget in 2020, uh, when uh, Nectar came out, his second album, one of the lead singles on that run, we both really loved. I had that on my top five songs of 2020. And he basically came up with a similar song this time around with the lead single Glimpse of Us, which is just a straight up you know, piano ballad, sung piano ballad, which happened to debut at number 10 and peak at number eight in the country. Like, how the hell did that happen? Like, obviously TikTok happened, but like, it's still wild to me that like TikTok propelled a Joji piano ballad to, let's see, 600 million streams at time of recording. Incredible. Like, obviously good for him, but I think, you know, the music, it, it sounds like the rest of his music's been sounding, which which is, is good. I think I'm more interested in him when I think the vocals can uh, be a bit more uh, lively. You know, I think a song like Night Rider stands out to me. Even a song like uh, Yukon Interlude, All Smithereens mm-hmm. here. There's that uh, vocal melody with the, the all-white truck part where it's like, ah, that's like a really nice touch from jo- Joji here. And I think like that that's probably like my favorite thing about him these days where like he there's just something kind of about his vocals, not only his studio vocals, as you said, but there's something about like those Joji vocals that can kind of, I think, take you by surprise because he, he comes across as so much more polished than his career arc would suggest, as mm-hmm. I think most people would know at this point. Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, I, I actually was left kind of questioning where his vocals have kind of gone to right it feels like since 
like slow dancing in the dark we haven't really mm-hmm. gotten a song where he's like really showing out on the high range of his abilities and yeah. that might be intentional you know maybe he is thinking about like how are these going to sound live do i really want to put myself in a position where i can't necessarily like replicate these i don't know but it feels like we get some moments on some of the reins where he he could have easily like had one of those really like high flying moments in a song like a great switch up or beat drop and he always kind of pulls back and smithereens feels a little bit more contained um which isn't necessarily a bad thing but it definitely left me feeling like where's the joji that you know i that we had a few years back back in 2017 yeah i mean you don't have like a gimme love on this or a a yeah right you know gimme love much more i think up tempo as poppy as Joji can probably sound and yeah, write much more electronic production. You don't really have that on this. You don't have like Modus off Nectar, which has like a really sticky uh, melody in the chorus in a fun way. Like you don't really have that. This is a lot more like stripped down, like vocals first kind of music. And he's a good enough singer to, to pull it off. But and and I think part of it, like glimpse of us, kind of like maybe like set the set the table for this. But like, yeah. you know, I prefer I think run, which just has I think a bit bigger of a high than glimpse of us. You know, it's slow dancing in the dark, same kind of thought. Where you know, glimpse of us perhaps just kind of pushed Joji in this direction um, yeah. to really get into the the singing bag, as it were here. Um, obviously no shade, no, no worries there. You know, he's made plenty of good songs already, you know, um, funny enough, when I was on vacation in, uh, out West, I saw someone, uh, like a teenage girl in a smithereens Joji shirt or a sweatshirt. Wow. Yeah. She was, I believe, I believe the tour, she must've went on tour cause the tour had just started and I was like, wow, Joji merch in the wild. Shout out Joji, man. Yeah. He's come a <laughs> long way. Um, yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. You kind of called out Knight Rider, which is one of the ones that really stood out to me. Really love the like way you can just ride on that. That feels like a a song that I could see sampled in, you know, for you know, like a rap song in the future type of thing. Mm. Um Yeah, I I think I even like the second song, feeling like the end. You know, those beginning keys remind me of the like um social network uh music where it's oh. like boom boom boom. <laughs> Like, I don't know why. I always just kind of been want him to, like, write a song over the social network music for some reason. Wow. Just feels like the right guy for it. That's a, that's a TikTok waiting to happen, man. Make one. <laughs> yeah. If only I could figure it out. I'm too old for that. You're you're, you're the TikTok person, Dave. Um, At Nostalgia Pod on Follow TikTok. us. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I think, like, when he goes a little bit more into the actual sound of the song, like, when he, when he relies on the ballads, like, and just his vocals like before the day is over i really found myself not quite jiving with the music but things like like 1am freestyle even near the end you know that piano is pretty great you get him harmonizing with himself a little bit which sounds really nice get some like cool percussion moments that's the kind of stuff i'm looking for joji because he has such a distinct sound i want to see him like continue to push it further you mentioned how we don't get a moment like run we don't get any like big guitars on this you know it's all pretty Mm -hmm. stripped back so um i hope that this is just kind of the direction he was going for this particular album and we'll get some more of those moments in the future but if this is like joji's like stripped back album it's still really good yeah 
I mean, he recently announced that in 2023, he's doing a show at Madison Square Garden and a show at the Forum in LA. Those are some big venues yeah. for anyone in 88 Rising. Like, I think it's pretty clear that Joji is like the biggest artist on 88 at this point. But to do even one show at MSG, mm-hmm. you, the music <laughs> you make, you're doing a show at MSG. That's wild. That's Great amazing for him. For him. I'm excited for that. Maybe yeah. I'll get tickets. We'll, we'll see how much they are. Um, any last thoughts on this, though? You ready to get to our, our guys? Yep. Let's do it. Time to talk about Her Loss, the newest uh, album from Drake and 21 Savage. They've collaborated together quite a few times now. We've heard a lot more from Drake recently than 21. Uh, yep. Honestly, never mind dropping earlier this year. Yeah. Less than six months ago, five months ago. An album I try not to think about much because uh, a really unsuccessful foray into rock music, I guess, for Drake. Uh, Electronic music. Electronic music. Electronic. House. Um, Jersey Club, specifically. Yes. Thank you. Um, And so Drake is back rapidly rapid on this. And it's it's nice to have him back. Not going to lie. I'd prefer this Drake 100 times out of 100 to honestly never mind um but this album is getting a lot of attention date for some not so good reasons so we got to get that's into that true too. we'll get into that yep why don't we start though first with is the music there on her loss uh, i say definitely i think the music is definitely here and it is drake has not sound this refreshed this lively this just straight up fun in several records like i like this way more than certified lover boy like oh, easily yeah. you know Dark Lane demo tapes, obviously. And I think you got to go all the way back to like, like more life. Wow. I, I think we're going that far back. You know, do we have the highs of Scorpion on this? No, no God's plan. No nice for what? No in my feelings. That being said, I think her loss is a better record than Scorpion overall. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's without fault, without, without bloat, still an hour long, but I mean, it's just, it's the best Drake sounded in quite some time. And man, like it, it really like I think I'm even more hyped about it because the fact that we got honestly never mind five months ago. Drake, to his credit, taking a swing and doing something completely different. An artist who's played it safe for so long. The fact that he tried something like that, we said this at the time, it's still commendable given his station. But I think vocally, songwriting wise, he just wasn't really up to snuff to match that. And of course, then when you get the Beyonce record doing that in a genuine and convincing manner it was over for that record. However, as everyone knows, the biggest hit of Fonzie Nevermind, the last track was Jimmy Cook's, which was not a house song at all. That was a uh, trap song featuring 21 Savage. Someone Drake has made many great songs with already at this point. And the fact that they're like, you know what? Let's just make an album together and release it this year. How nice, how great. Um, And yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of, a lot of bangers, a lot of fun stuff on this. But I think Drake, he just feels and sounds so much more refreshed. His writing is, for the most part, much stronger and more interesting on her loss, even if this might be like a, quote, simpler record. But I'd rather listen to this than Drake at his moodiest, like on views or something, you know? Like th- this is, I think, like the ideal of what you'd want from Drake in his mid-30s. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I think that, this is uh, definitely a bit of a return to form for Drake. I think there's a few songs on here that are just 
absolutely fantastic and you know make me excited to hear him again and i feel like having 21 I've, it seems to really have inspired him and they play off each other so well yeah, amazing chemistry it's just as simple as that and it just feels like 21 is like is there anything this guy can't do for rap right now like he's gotta be one of the like uh, most surprising biggest stars because you know you think about like the first kind of like the first couple times you he really like broke out some of those, yeah, like savage mode hits. one back in the day you're you're kind of like all right like this guy's like pretty cool a bit one note like yeah he's he'll be around and like kind of be like push a t like drop in like really just like do his thing really well slaughter gang shit murder gang shit he on this i was really impressed with like his ability to like switch things up a bit like some of the sound we get from him are things we've really never heard him doing in terms of like tone on the song even like cadence in terms of some of his rapping it was like okay 21 also like busting out but just his ability to even like invigorate some of these stars and really like bring out the best yeah i loved the line that was like um i forgot exactly which song it was on but it was something like uh i i, I feature on your song make it my own or something like that and then mm-hmm. Drake comes in and is like, I have you feature on a song and make the record think they need you. And I was like, ooh, okay. Like, I, I like the back and forth. And like, I yeah. appreciate the flex. There's some great moments like that. Yeah. They have a great back and forth. Yeah. I um, think, um, it, it, I think that this is a pretty easy take at this point, but like, Drake and 21 Savage through their many high profile collabs, you know, Mr. Right Now, Knife Talk, Jimmy Cooks, Sneakin' unreleased song Issa and now this record they have more chemistry and make more sense together than Drake and Future ever did and Drake and Future of course made a whole album together what a time to be alive but this is just so much more successful because they really just fit each other so well it's still a Drake first record you know like oh, yeah. 21 doesn't have equal time or anything he's much clearly in support of Drizzy on this but I think it's all right because it's not that 21 like needs this look like, like you said, he's doing things we haven't heard before, but 21 has also come so far with those last few records. I'm greater than I was. And, and uh, Savage Mode two, of course, like he has gotten to like as close as he probably can to rap stardom and through these un, un, unceremonious begin- beginnings in Atlanta rap. And now at this point, the fact that he can just like play like second fiddle to Drake but do it better than like almost anyone ever has. Like, I think it's honestly another like feather in 21's cap, you know, like he's already been a great feature artist for so long. Now people have talked about how far he's come. We've all known that, but the fact that he can like really like match Drake and get Drake to really buy in as much as he did as well, which we know hasn't always been, you know, a sure thing with Drake these days, right? Drake has been prone to play it safe and, 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 just chill out because he's Drake and they'll be successful no matter what. But on this, I think they really brought the most out of each other. And that's what makes it so fun. Um, yeah, I completely yeah. agree. And just to kind of highlight that, you know, to clean up the line I was talking about before is on, on BS, which I think is maybe one of my favorite like songs where they go back and forth, trading bars yep. um, and interplaying together. Right. 21 says, I jump on your song and make you sound like you, the feature. And then Drake just jumps in so seamlessly with, um, I jump on your song, make a label think they need you. And it's just like, mm. it's so beautifully delivered. Like they really like glide around each other so well. And it's yeah. like, it's just them both flexing and just feeling so confident and like light, like that song, they really just seem 
so happy and you know those first three songs rich flex major distribution on bs like absolute mm. heaters to open rich flex probably my favorite yeah. song on the album i'd say 21 can you do some for me <laughs> so good so good man. <laughs> but I mean, then like... that song like already super catchy from drake in the beginning right then that song has a huge beat flip and mm-hmm. and like it picks back up and drake is like super energized and like really like in his rapping bag with all these like acronym rhymes and like i was like sitting there like listening i was like holy shit you haven't got drake like this Mm-hmm. like this about it in quite some time and that was track one i was like oh my god this is so so refreshing i love it and then yeah right off the bat uh after that track two major distribution which i love i think the first line you know major distribution labels on my dick for real hilarious to hear <laughs> but later on uh kind of what you had been getting at before with the chemistry between 21 and drake Drake starts it off in his verse. Major distribution labels call me Bad Bunny. This a robbery. Five hundred million just for Aubrey. Later on, twenty one Harry Styles numbers. It's a robbery. My mm-hmm. dudes go insane to catch a body. I was like, let's fucking go. Yeah. That's amazing <laughs> wordplay. Um, yeah. Obviously, I think probably the single like most celebrated line would be on Treacherous Twins, where twenty one, of course gets you gets you hard with i don't show id at the club because they know that i'm 21 Mm -hmm. which honestly i was levitating when i heard that (laughs) like and i think so i saw some people pushing back on that it's like oh that that's a simple line just some simple double meaning what's the big deal it's like no you don't get it like 21 savage has been at it for seven years now he's been at a long career the fact that took us this long to hear that line from him makes it that much more better it's like when push a t blows your mind with a new way to talk about selling coke <laughs> like it, it just hits so hard i think because of like how simple and how long it had been to hear something like that from him I, like honestly like, that's like my favorite bar of the year i think well it, and he could like you said he could have said that when he first came up like he probably had had that written for a long time but to do it now when he actually is established i mean he's on an album with fucking drake like the <laughs> but best-selling rapper of all time yeah. at this point. It's like, yeah, this is a time when you can drop a line like that, and it means a lot more than it would have when he was actually, like, just turned 21. Um, Treacherous Twins, by the way, another, like, awesome that's my, track. That's my number one, I think. That's I number that one. one. Yeah. Because um, like, that's melodic Drake. Like, Drake doesn't just rap his ass off. He also gets into the other, other side of his, what makes him great, you know, which is his versatility. And that's a song where... Drake is much more melodic, I think, in a really fun way. You know, my treacherous little twin. You know, you know that we going in. Like, and then of course, mm-hmm. twenty one jumps in, and he's like, it's just such a different vibe, but it works so well together. You know, I think um, some of the slower moments on this record, like hours in silence. You know, that one's a little too slow. Don't really like that one, but yeah, like the fact that I think he was able to really nail both melodic Drake and like trap and Drake too on this with twenty one in both camps. Like, I think. Man, I, I'm just so pleased with just how much there is on, like, offer from Drake on this one, you know? Like, I don't have to go in and, like, convince myself that, like, one of those, you know, Drake sitting there musing about how terrible his life is songs is kind of good and thoughtful. It's like, no, I don't have to worry about that this time, you know? But if I did, you still got Middle of the Ocean, which is pretty good, too. <laughs> I was about to say, I really liked Middle, middle of the Ocean, first of all feels like an action bronson song that drake just is like okay i'm gonna make an action uh, bronson song really hits we get a we get a fucking robert Kraft line in this like he got me private jet that's patriotic 
okay. All right. <laughs> sure. I'll take it. It's a little corny, but I'll take it. It's, like, it's part, of his, part of Drake's brand is to be corny at times, too. Exactly. And honestly, I just thought I thought he sounded like kind of like old school Drake on that, which I appreciated. Uh-huh. And yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple of duds for me. Um, you mentioned uh, Hours in Silence, like just get that off this album. Circo Loco, which I mean, we should talk about for the the Meg line, but overall, like taking one more time, slowing it down like that just kind of takes yeah. the fun out of it for me. Like just didn't need it. And I thought Drake singing on that was just like horrid, like just yeah. terrible. I think like I actually don't mind the sample. Obviously, it's a big swing to sample Daft Punk, period, but especially in this high profile of a manner. It's like, huh, this this is like a, a interesting idea. I think if the rest of the song was a bit more interesting maybe could have worked obviously like you're never touching Kanye when it comes to sampling Daft Punk we know this but like I think there was actually like something to like a stripped down chopped and screwed Daft Punk sample but this doesn't really come together and that's before you factor in the Meg line um yeah what were your thoughts on the Meg line while we're here yeah so what what's he say he says um uh girls or hoes lying about their shots something like a stallion or whatever you had little yachty coming out of the woodwork carrying some water saying that drake was just talking about girls that lie about the fact that they have ass shots uh, in their butt and of course stallion is a you know more of a general term for like bigger tall women and it's like you know what that all sounds true and correct but the fact that there is double meaning with this because of everything that's happened with Megan the Stallion and Tory Lanez is why someone as good of a writer as Drake should not have one of these lines. Because even if that was not your attention at all, surely you're not that stupid to think that people can't read between the lines on the line. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, uh, we've talked about this when uh, Meg's Traumazine came out. Like, we need to let this go and let one of the most exciting new talents in rap just continue her career. And Mm -hmm. we don't need throwaway bars from Drake of all people to be making fun of that situation in any way. It's just really in poor taste. Well, and just to like hammer home it, what you're saying more, the line is actually this, this bitch lie about getting shots, but she is stallion. So it's implying that like Meg was playing this up potentially lying about it in some way she got fucking shot like i, I, just, I just like i don't even know like drake also used to hate tory lanes because like, tory lanes is from canada and used to be diet drake and still basically is like come on man just just feels like a misstep for whatever reason uh, i don't know and then the next song you get travis scott which uh was almost like a little jarring to see him you know i feel like we, yeah. we haven't really gotten much i don't mind him. that quite as much like he will be back yeah. you know what did you think of that song? Uh, it's all right. Um, I actually thought Travis like kind of fits this production fine, but yeah. it's not my favorite. Like Drake or Twenty One on the album is all. Um, Anything yeah. on the back half that you really liked? Yeah, I thought um, Jumbo Chip Poppin. Sorry, Jumbotron Chip Poppin, which is Drake only. I like that one from Drake. Jumbo Chip Poppin. I like that one more. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, second to last song, you got Three A.M. on Glenwood. Another entry in the AMPM series from Drake, which is storied, of course, except it's not Drake now. It's 21 only. And 21 doing one of the classic Drake storytelling songs. What, what a nice gesture from Drake to give 
a song, a, 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 one one of the AMPM songs, two twenty one. I thought that was that like really wore in my heart. And like, <laughs> like like Drake, Drake isn't just like this has been clear for a while at twenty one. But like Drake isn't just like riding the new young guy who's got a new spin on hip hop that Drake can take some stuff and and propel himself forward. We've known Drake's done that before. He's not doing this with twenty one, but like that's like a really genuine thing I think to do on a Drake record is to give an AMPM song to your collaborator. Yeah, no, I thought that was thought that was nice too, and I thought Twenty One did all right with that. Wasn't a song that I was like oh, going to be going back to this one the most off of it, but definitely decent. I think overall, just like uh, very happy to see this album turn out the way it did. Um, you know, especially with what we've gotten from Drake recently, felt like this could have gone a lot worse. So good to see him back in form. Yeah, uh, he also uh, Drake did like make a reference to Dram and. Uh, you know, chop chop being ripped off with Hotline Bling, and Duran posted a video about it being like, "Bro, this was like so long ago," which is kind of my take on this too. Like, why are you punching down on Dram? Like, come on, guy, you already stole the song. You got away with it. Let's yeah. move on here. That was like five albums ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, any last thoughts? Are you ready to get to some Grammys? Let's. You know, Drake. Um, is not submitting, honestly, never mind, to the Grammys. Of course, her loss isn't eligible yet, but I think the Grammys will be all right without his music this time around. Dave, next Tuesday, November 15th, the 2023 Grammy Award nominations will be released. And so it's time to do one of our favorite things, which is try to predict one of the most unpredictable but also predictable award shows out there the grammys uh there's a lot to get into here we're going to cover some of the major categories uh album record song of the year best new artist maybe a couple others as well but i just want to start you know i think all the 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 time was from like last october to the end of this september yeah october 1st 2021 to september 30th 2022 that's exactly right pat so you got some Albums that f- seem a little old that are uh, still eligible for this Grammys, like Adele's record, of course. Then you had some albums that came out in the last month that are not this Grammy period, such as Taylor Swift's Midnights. But and still so, plenty of uh, big names, of course, with this Grammy period for 2023. A ton of big names here. Um, you know, I, I think like the, my first question just becomes like, do we just pencil Adele and Beyonce into every category? pretty much i think so honestly right (laughs) um i think so and this is obviously a repeat of last time around when they both dropped albums they both dropped a huge hit record uh lemonade and um what's adele's last album called 25 uh whatever 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 age it was and of course they went head to head and now they're literally doing it again you know (laughs) and and shout out taylor you know, releasing Midnight's just after the Grammy period turned because she knew she didn't want nothing, none of this, and she could just wait till next year when she had way less uh, competition. You know, honestly, smart, smart game. (laughs) Smart move. Yeah, absolutely, because not only are we getting Adele and Beyonce this year, but Kendrick Lamar. Yep. As much as I hate to say it, Harry Styles, who I'm sure will be getting a lot of love at these. Bad Bunny. Yeah, I mean, how how do they even go this long without mentioning Bad Bunny? Um, and then we also have a couple of uh, of people that most likely deserve to be up there and possibly have the album of the year, but aren't going to get that recognition. Someone like Rosalia or Steve Lacey. So there's a lot of people to get into here. 
the locks at the top, Adele and Beyonce for album of the year. But after that, who would you say is like a surefire lock? Kendrick, Harry, Bunny. I think we're finally to the point where through sheer force of popularity, Bad Bunny is now going to be in the main Grammy categories and not just relegated to the Latin genre categories. We've talked about this the past few years. With the Grammys were ignoring the globalism of music, not just with reggaeton, but also stuff like Afrobeat with Burna Boy. Bad Bunny having the biggest tour of the year, the biggest album of the summer by far. He's going to eventually have like six songs off uh, Un Verano Senti, hit a billion streams on Spotify. Like, he can't be any bigger. And now they, they will no longer ignore him, thankfully. And obviously very happy to see that it is a bit of a history-making thing. Um, unfortunate for Bad Bunny, he's going up in the same year as Beyonce and Adele, so thanks for playing. But I, I do feel confident he will be an album of the year. And we should mention, um, you know, the the red version of Taylor Swift. Uh, Taylor Swift's red version is coming out, or red Taylor's version, I'm sorry, is coming out, uh, or it will be in this Grammy thing. I, right. I, I don't know how they're really going to approach that. You know, All Too Well was, uh, the 10-minute the version was a huge moment off that, but since it's a you know, redoing of these songs, reimagining of these songs, I, I can't imagine that, they're going to nominate it but man it's in play you know potentially it's definitely in play and for this grammys the 2023 grammys they actually switched the eligibility where it went from 50 percent to 75 percent of an album has to be newly recorded music to be eligible to be nominated and that was really designed to get rid of like deluxe reissues having another bite at the apple and getting nominated you like the Black Pumas, this happened with them. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what that's going for. Taylor did technically re-record most of the music. Kind of, It's kind of annoying to me. Like, it's not even any shots at, like, how well that was done. But, like, it's a re-released record. We don't need to nominate it again. doesn't matter who made it. If you want to nominate All Too Well 10-minute version in, like, song or record, I have less issue with that because it's a complete rework of the song and actually, like, made the song more celebrated than it ever was in its original form. I think that's much more agreeable, but Hey, you can't rule out the album getting in there. Right. But then again, I'm assuming it's submitted. We don't, we don't know all the details on yet in terms of what artists and labels submitted. What we know the weekend and Drake aren't submitting their stuff. So they're out of the picture, but yeah, the Taylor, the Taylor stuff is, a, is in play, which is a bit, a bit odd just because it's, it's unusual to have something like this happen. Completely agree. It's it's gonna be interesting to see how they handle it. You know, they are um, adding a um, category for like best song writing, so maybe that will be a way to kind of give Taylor her flowers, but not have to, you know, have the have the whole album be recognized. Um, yeah, so I agree with you. I think going back to it, Adele, Beyonce, uh, Kendrick, and Bad Bunny seemed like surefire locks. Harry as well. Yeah, so that's um, five right there, but you still have plenty of other options. I would love to see Rosalia get in there as well as Steve Lacey. Like, those are the two I think I'm riding most for to get those other spots. What about you? Yep, I mean, those would be awesome for sure. I'm, I'm hoping Steve at least gets some love and like song or record for, for Bad Habit, you would assume. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the rest of Album of the Year is kind of interesting for the ways that could go. You know, it would really signify. 
like major change in the recording academy if Rosalia also get in, right? Motomami, well liked, popular from who heard it. And not that it was a tiny album, but not obviously on the stratosphere of Bad Bunny, which just became mainstream and 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 normal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and standard bearing on the radio. Rosalia wasn't that, but it was a really amazing record which I'd love to see here. I think you you have to you really can't overlook some of the more usual suspects, as it were, for categories like this at the Grammys. In play, we have albums from Coldplay and Post Malone and Lizzo and Ed Sheeran and Brandy Carlisle and ABBA's comeback album. Not to mention Phineas, who has a lot of Grammy love and attention due to his sister. You know, like. Mm-hmm. I saw some predicting sites noting the Encanto soundtrack. Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, very famous with awards bodies by by now. Um, even something perhaps less less celebrated, like like Burna Boy and Anita. Like, there's actually quite a bit of choice here. I'm, I'm just kind of curious where they go because there are there always are like some kind of less mainstream picks, like a John Baptiste or Baptiste or something. You know? Yeah, you know, I if I had to like actually put money down on this it feels pretty safe to me that lizzo will probably get nominated they want that star power they want that um you know performance uh and just her her persona in general i think to be there brandy carlisle's interesting i haven't we haven't listened to that album um i've heard it's good Uh, she's she's an artist that like i kind of wrote off i feel like a long time ago Mm -hmm. and just continues to put out really great work and i should probably dive deeper into her and then we get a little further down it's like you know, Elton John, this is like a collaboration album and I, I could see them wanting to just kind of give him some shine. You know, I, I, I imagine there will be some sort of like performance at the Grammys where they have yep. all the artists that he did collaborations with doing these songs. That's interesting. Uh, Maggie Rogers stands out as someone that they could oh, yeah. anoint as like, okay, like the next like Grammy artist type of thing. She's been lauded as like the second coming of, you know, pop female uh, rocket for a long time yeah. and that's Surrenders. she's definitely named to watch to see how she does here no Surrenders doubt up there and then uh, you know we didn't even talk about black pink like are we really gonna not get any black pink in this i don't know i think black pink's best chance is probably on some of the song categories yeah. i mean just a year ago bts didn't get an album nom either but they have gotten some pop vocal group performance noms whatever the award title is these days um yeah i think you know it would be awesome if like shut down got a nomination one of the song categories but yeah i, I don't i don't I, I unfortunately don't think any k-pop is gonna break through album of the year but born pink would probably be the the one with the best chance and i gotta say like if if one thing would make me really happy getting a black country new road nomination just like sneaking in there would like blow my mind <laughs> the thing that would, that would kill me is if kanye gets any love at this because i Donda 2 is up for consideration, and that would just be a. It is technically, you're right. Yeah, I think there's no chance, honestly, after everything that's happened more recently. Um, And also, it wasn't a good record. So, yeah, we don't need that. All right, Dave. So, now that we've kind of gone through all the possibilities, give me your like top eight here. Yeah, okay. So, get the big five Adele, Beyonce, Kendrick, Bunny, Harry, Locke. Let's go Lizzo. Let's go Brandy Carlisle at seven. Let's go Ed Sheeran equals. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's what, eight? It's going to do it. Yeah. Let's go there. You know, maybe we take out Ed and throw Abba in. I kind of have a feeling Abba's going to get in. Yeah, I could see Abba getting in. Um, I, I wonder if, if maybe Harry's house isn't going to... I don't know. That, that's the one I just, I just be, don't want. That would be some <laughs> taste, bro. That would, that would be something to see, like... Hey, I know. We'll nominate as it was, but the house, the house is staying away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I guess if if I had to like take take one out of there, yeah, it probably would be right. switching like Ed Sheeran with like Rosalia, because I, I could see them going international with Bunny. But I guess maybe Bunny's gonna cover that corner. I don't know. This is hard, man. There's so right. many good albums. This past of course, year. the weekend's Dawn FM would have been right there in the mix if he, the weekend would let his label submit it but fuck that like why would he do that again i don't know they fucked him over last time i i don't blame him at all for being salty yeah let's let's move forward to record of the year though again we're we're talking the the big three at least for this one adele with easy on me harry styles as it was and beyonce the one that she's submitting is break my soul which makes sense that was the single um those three absolute locks lizzo with about damn time also seems like a lock from there yeah but then are we uh, is the, the tiktok sensation bad habit gonna be in there are we gonna well, get the 10 minute all too well taylor version that's the thing right and we'll just say all right at the back we'll just talk about record and song of the year kind of in the same boat they have different yeah. definitions but often the artists submit the same song for both with a few exceptions one is more about the words and the songwriting, as you can expect. The other one's about the whole construction of the record, the whole the whole song itself with the music. When you look at the nominations year of the year, they're always pretty similar. So we'll just keep it keep it all in one. Yeah, well, I you know, I would love to see Bad Habit in there because that was a song that was just straight up good when it came out. It didn't need TikTok to make people like it. TikTok made it popular, obviously, but like we liked that song the first time we heard it. It's a great mm-hmm. song. I love that song. Um that would be really awesome for Steve to get in there. The internet, of course, his R&B band has been Grammy nominated in the past. So it wouldn't come out of nowhere. It would not come out of nowhere. And I, I think that there's a really good chance for him to get in there. One that, see, and, and I also think All Too Well has a good chance to get nominated here, which which would be crazy that we're going to be talking Harry, Adele, Beyonce, and Taylor, and Lizzo, all in the same category. It's like, insane mm-hmm. you know one of the one of the sites that i was looking at for the research mentioned we don't talk about bruno from the encanto cast i mean i didn't mm-hmm. even think about that for the grammys but makes a lot of sense yeah i mean, I mean well. if the if the album is perhaps in the mix then surely bruno's in the mix you know absolutely uh, I, i'd support it honestly I, I i have no beef with it as getting oh, some kind of love there I wouldn't hate it. I, I think there's just other songs I'd want to get in yeah. here, right? So like Kendrick submitted The Heart Part 5. I think that one would be a great song to put in there. Bad Bunny submitted Después de la Playa. Get that yep. in there. That After the Beach. fucking fire. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Um, and then we didn't even get to some of these other ones, like ABBA's song, like you mentioned, probably has a good shot of getting in there. Billie Eilish submitted TV. Jack Harlow with First Class, which would be terrible, but could get in there. I mean, what other yeah. songs stand out to you as possibilities? Joji, Glimpse of Us, anyone? Let's go. Could happen. Um, I'm pulling for Lady Gaga's song on the Top Gun Maverick soundtrack, Hold My Hand. 
because I think that song is amazing. It's not as big as Shallow, but I think it's still pretty darn good. Probably not going to happen, but that's that, that's one of my, my, my picks here. Um, I saw a lot of love for Dove Cameron's boyfriend on predicting sites and stuff. I don't know about that one, honestly. Um, bad Habit, Ed Sheeran, I guess, technically. Two Bad Habits in the same category? That would be funny. Actually, wait, no. <laughs> I think that might have I think that might have came out in the last period as a single, and the gotcha. album's the one that's in the mix. So maybe Ed can't be in here. I'm not sure. Um, I did see, and this this kind of confused the shit out of me. I, I think it was like Billboard said this. Doja Cat's "Woman" is eligible for song categories because it came out as a single on October 1st, aka day one of this period. Of course, "Planet Her" came out in June 2021, last year, last year's Grammy period. Woman was on Planet Her, so why is the single somehow nominatable? I don't get it. Yeah, but no the idea. Grammys are confounding sometimes. I think um, in terms of Doja, like the Post Malone Doja song, I Like You, mm-hmm. the biggest post song off that record. Doja had some love last year. Maybe that one could break through in something. But And uh, uh, just to clean up, uh, Ed Sheeran submitted uh, Shivers, not Bad Habits. So, well, yeah, bad honestly... Both those songs sound the same in my head, so <laughs> whatever, I'll, I'll imagine it. Uh, you know, I think this is really going to be an interesting test for how strong the TikTok like brand is at these Grammys because the anxiety, which is Willow Smith and the other guy, <laughs> uh, meet me at, at our spot is going to be up, uh, is nominated or potentially nominated in this category. Wait, as what? well it as, is? yeah, and as well as I Hate You by SZA which oh, right yes interesting but those are two huge uh tiktok songs so really gonna test uh <laughs> i think just how strong that that social media site is impacting these you know yeah i don't really i don't really see any others up here that really catch my interests i think some of the other songs that come to mind are probably for the other categories like coldplay bts collab my universe that could be in like pop group vocal performance whatever that one's called maybe mm-hmm. um i know there's a big kerfluffle with Nicki minaj's super freaky girl not being in rap and actually being in the pop category um you know Nicki was trading words on twitter with lotto because big energy is actually going to be competing in melodic rap so there's a lot of other big songs i think will probably just be in genre like mm-hmm. those ones but i mean super freaky girl did go number one perhaps slightly possible but i probably wouldn't pick it yeah no i i think the ones that we mentioned at the top uh you know the the three big songs from the three big stars there easy on me as it was break my soul and then about damn time as well i think all too well bad habit are, are locks and then i'd like to see the heart part five and we don't talk about bruno but i imagine brandy carlos probably gonna get a song in here you know, so yeah, that's true. Yep. Maybe Bruno gets kicked out. Maybe Kendrick doesn't get the love this time around. I really would love love to see Joji get in there, though. That'd be great. Yeah, Joji and Steve that. both getting noms would be really nice, just for like the meritocracy of awards and stuff. Yeah, definitely. You know, we gotta talk about best new artist, which this is a hilarious category. We've every talked year about we it. say the same thing because it doesn't change. <laughs> It's it's nuts, and some of these artists I I really like don't know them right. So some of the ones that seem like they have a good shot, people like Zach Bryan, 
Yeah. And assuming he's a country artist. Zach Bryan Locke came in. He's like, I think, a significant artist to and justly nominated because he's like the first country artist to really blow up and target streaming music. As we know, country for a long time was much more traditional with album sales and radio and stuff. But Zach Bryan is like a true genuine country TikTok or sorry, country streaming star and has also been really well liked. So yeah, he really makes sense actually for this award, which is nice because there are some artists that don't really make sense because they're not actually new. Oh, do you mean like Mitski who's been making like records since uh, 2010? Like <laughs> I don't even know how she's even on here. So the the way best new artist works is you're allowed to submit yourself three times. Blackpink was technically in the mix for best new artist last year, the fifth year of their existence. It seems like Mitski just was not submitted formally uh, three times in the past, so that's why she's technically in the mix here. But it's it, it's a ludicrous notion, obviously. Like Laurel Hell was what her fifth sixth record like yeah six uh her first album came out a decade ago a decade ago and they just did this like two years ago with katranata who also had a decade long (laughs) career to that point you know they keep doing it so yeah like mitski is i think the the biggest offender uh this time around i saw soccer mommy is still in the mix um little tj like anita like anita had a really big blow up in the west in the united states um She's been huge in Latin circles for a very long time. Again, it's just kind of disingenuous to suggest that they're new. Um, I saw that Twice was eligible for Best New Artist. They are a K-pop group that has already progressed through their first label contract and has renewed. Renewed because a lot of time had passed. We just talked about the 11th Twice EP in August. How could you possibly call them a new artist? You know? It's wild shit. Beth, it's crazy um you know and there there's some artists on here that seem like you know like, like it kind of makes sense uh black country new road is up yeah which would be, be great although they are not going to be abandoned anymore moving forward so yeah maybe not worth it yeah. joji with his third album that just came out but only two uh by the time of you know the the award uh window closing right. so I, I don't mind that one so much same with uh snail mail Lindsay jordan would be great um but it seems like we're gonna get a pretty eclectic approach here lotto is like probably the most surefire lock for this category yep justly Um, you mentioned anita uh mooney long seems like they have a good shot tate mccray which i could have sworn he they've been around for a lot longer but tate mccray sure we i mean it was the debut album this year so just feels like they've been around for a long time yeah um any others that really stand out to you here? Yeah, I mean, there's some. <clears throat> I'd love to see Fireboy DML get in here on Af- the Afrobeat side of things. That'd be awesome. Um, more eclectic, probably not likely, but Pink Panthers would come to mind here. Um, I think people that we've talked about before, like features like Blast or Omar Apollo, like rising artists, new enough to call new. Um, I don't know how likely it is, but someone I literally like uh, is an indie artist called Remy Wolf, kind of like an indie pop singer. Mm-hmm. That'd be a really inspired pick because she's not super mainstream still. I think that'd be pretty cool. Um, there's other t- uh, K-pop candidates, obviously. Um, and notably, if you've been nominated before, 
at the Grammys, you're not eligible to win Best New Artist anymore. So people like Steve Lacey, Jack Harlow, Thames, Chloe Bailey, all cannot be nominated. Um, Rina Sawayama apparently is still eligible. Of course, I was calling for her to be nominated last year. Now we have a whole nother Rina album has come out. Um, yeah, put her in there, you know. This is, I think, notable, though, that this is the best new artist year that doesn't quite have the star power of the past few years. Like, the last four winners of this award, like, you really can't top this. Olivia Rodrigo, Megan Thee Stallion, Billie Eilish, and Dua Lipa. Like, yeah, no. We don't have someone of that caliber up, up this this year. But no. still a lot of talent, a lot of interesting people. A couple of uh, favorites of the pod that are also up for it that we haven't talked about. Kim Petras, or you might have mentioned Kim Petras, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but L- Little Sims as well um is yep. uh, not potentially nominated so i would really like little sims to get it uh, yeah really that'd be awesome her. huh oh kim yeah. pentris you know her song with sam smith unholy which went number one huge it, that's actually probably in the mix for some of the other pop awards and maybe even bigger we should have mentioned that before that's a good call yeah that, that song is everywhere right now um yeah this is an interesting category and I, there's just no way to predict it because uh i think based on our tastes and things like that. Um, I, I'm not totally tuned in to some of these artists. Um, yeah. So it's hard to like gauge exactly how famous they are. But, you know, I yeah. look at like, I look at the awards, like, you know, they give the odds and like snail mail being like the 40th best chance to like make this category. I'm like, what, what how? Like, you know, Ben Franklin, I know. like I listen to that song all the time. Like, fuck. Yep. Love it. Crazy. Um, yeah. I think someone else in the mix who I'm not really too familiar with, with is this teenager named Gail who actually will be going on tour with Taylor Swift next year. Yeah. So that kind of makes sense there. That that Taylor oh. Swift tour dog, I mean, her openers are insane. Paramore, Haim, Phoebe Bridgers, yep. like what? <laughs> uh someone else who I haven't seen listen to any of the ballots yet, but I think is a clear candidate for best new artist would be Ethel Kane, who is an indie singer who has really come on this year and just she just screams oh she'll be nominated for best new artist in two years yeah she's like still too new you know so keep keep an eye out for ethel kane but like her song was an american teenager i think it is like she's got some interesting songs and has like a uncompromising approach to like alternative and like indie music that is somehow becoming mainstream pop appealing interesting person to pay attention to it would be really inspiring if someone as new in their career as Ethel Kane actually got in this category, but I'd probably pick against it this year. Uh, I think there's any chance that we to just circle back to the songs that we see, like uh, like Pink Venom, because that was nominated for like record and song. They gotta I, get K-pop in there somehow, right? You can't I would just I, I would call if, I would put put for shutdown. I think uh, like I forget the names they always change, but like the group group like vocal pop vocal mm. performance category i think that's where we should push for a shutdown because that's kind of where uh dynamite and butter were nominated the last that's two true. years so yeah I, probably one day we'll get an album keep up on there but like i i can't see the j-hope album breaking through no. to get nominated you know which would have been cool if it did i like the album but um for the rock album category do you think the second Machine Gun Kelly album, Mainstream Sellout, will get nominated because they didn't nominate his last one, Tickets to My Downfall. Do you think Second Time's the Charm for MGK's Rock Pivot? Hmm, that's a good question. No. It wasn't his bigger th- record this time around. I don't think it will. I think that's going to be full of old heads and, 
you know, I'm thinking like Red Hot Chili Peppers had a pretty liked album yeah. this past year. Uh, Jack White also had a pretty liked yep. album. So I think some of those older heads will probably take the spots. But, you know, you never know. I, I can't get my head around the Machine Gun Kelly love. It's <laughs> so baffling. And him and uh, Megan Fox relationship is terrifying to me. It, it is. It is something. Yeah. Uh, Dave, any like any picks for the rap? category anything that you think is going to be there yeah i think rap album actually is a bit easier to predict than it has been the past few years if you reflect back there's been a lot of older heads a lot of older rappers being nominated which has been largely a good thing for the most part but i think this year it's it, pretty easy to see like kendrick miss around the big steppers mm-hmm. nominated and winning so move being beyond that what else is going to happen well the last time Freddie Gitz dropped an album, he got nominated for Alfredo. Surely Soul Sold Separately, which came on the last day of the Grammy period. I think that one's pretty safe, too. Uh, Jid, Forever Story. I think a lot of people would really want to see that one happen. And I think it needs to happen. That one really deserves it. Um, and then Pusha T, another great record from him. I think those four are all pretty safe. So who's the fifth one? You have Future in the mix. I don't think Joey Badass is famous enough. Uh, honestly, given, given they've been focusing on old heads, I would not be shocked to see Black Thought and Danger Mouse's cheat codes get in there. But you also have like Rock Marciano and The Alchemist's The Elephant Man's Bones coming out. You know, it depends how like hip hop head they really get. But they they kind of have been going down that road lately. You know, um, I'm trying to think like. In terms of like younger, more Atlanta sounding stuff, like the, the little baby album is in this period. So you have like after the future record, which was quite big, you have like the gun album, little Dirk album, Yeet, you know, like I don't know. Like, I can't really see any of them getting in. I have a feeling like the one thing we don't want to see is we don't want to see Jack get in there. No. Like that that that's not justified. Um so yeah, I'm gonna go with Kendrick, Jid, Gibbs, Pusha, and Black Thought. I like it. I think think that that's a good call. Um, any other predictions or feeling pretty good for, with where we're at? No, I think that's pretty good. I mean, uh, I, I would love to know more of like, it'd be really cool if we could see like everything that gets submitted because yeah. obviously like artists and labels pick one song for the category or, or, or maybe they pick a few, but like, you know what they submitted and thus, you know, what's actually getting thought about. And it's kind of hard to like do a lot of those like genre song predictions when you don't actually know what's in the mix. Because a lot of times the song I would pick doesn't actually get submitted, so therefore it can't even get nominated. Yeah, you know, I I think that this is going to be a um, year with a few surprises, but mostly locks. So uh, <laughs> we might have some things to talk about. We'll be recapping it next week. So hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod. And if you're watching on YouTube, drop a comment for who you think should get nominated. And if yep. there's any new artists that we didn't mention that you think should be nominated, drop and tell us why we should be listening to them or, re- or reviewing them. Um, Dave, we're going to wrap it One up. One last note, actually, I forgot. We should note Silk Sonic. Anderson Pack, Bruno Mars, they decided not to submit their album, which came out in this period. They decided that Leave the Door Open, which was in the last Grammy cycle as a single, they thought all the love they got for Leave the Door Open was enough, and they chose not to submit the album, which justified album to be nominated for sure, but I actually kind of respect that. They're like, no, we're, we're happy with what happened last year. That's enough for us. Hell yeah. You know, kind of nice. 
good for them. Um, Dave, we're going to wrap up there. What do we got for next week? So next week, obviously, we have the long-awaited Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Black Panther 2. Very exciting. We'll also be talking about the fourth and final season of Atlanta, which has been very strong. Excited to talk about that. Of course, we'll get into the Grammy nominations after they officially come out. And then there's a bunch of records uh, still. Christine the Queens, Nas, King Disease 3, Glorilla. Um, Lil Rel Howery has a comedy special coming out. I like Lil Rel. You know, okay. some stuff coming up. We'll talk about it. Hit that subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Go to our Twitter at nostalgiapod. Follow the link tree to follow podcasts anywhere you can there. And we'll catch you next week. Yeah.